0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy and why they matter. I'm your host David Stein and today is episode 23. It's titled Smart Beta. What is it and what should you do about it? The term Smart Beta is a investment term that has really come in vogue in the last 5 to to 8 years and just the thing you need to know about investing is it's very trend-oriented. Very, It's just like with fashion. Things come in favor, things go out of favor. And I've been in the investing world long enough to, to see this. An example of that is something called asset liability matching, which is where a pension plan has their liability, which is the promised benefits they're paying to their retirees. And they calculate the average life of those of that liability of those benefit, let's say it's 20 years. So your average reti- retiree will retire in 20 years. And so that's kind of the liability. And then they try to match the, the duration of the assets, particularly the bonds. If you, li- if you listen to last episode, episode 22, I talked about what duration was. So they, they try to match the duration of the assets and to to the liabilities, and and what's interesting about that I had this pension plan in the 80s that that did this. I'm sorry, not 80s in the in the 90s they did this, and the way that they did this they had to go out and hire a bond manager that ran a very very long term bond portfolio, about a 24 year duration bond portfolio because their liabilities or these benefits that they were going to be paying the retirees, the the duration of their liabilities was about 24 years. That was the theory back in the late 90s. And, And it's a very, very good theory. I mean, it works, except that the idea is that as interest rates go up, the value of the liabilities goes down, but also the value of the assets. And I remember sitting with this pension committee, the investment committee, and and they're they're like, and interest rates had gone up that year, and their bond portfolio was down, probably eight or nine percent. And and they then they're, <laughs> they're just like, what 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 is this? Why is our bond portfolio falling? And the reality is, they hadn't really bought in to the strategy. They liked it as long as interest rates were falling, and their bond portfolio was returning fifteen to twenty percent a year. But as soon as they started backing up, they they didn't quite care for that. So we we ended up shifting out of that strategy. And it wasn't something that I had brought to the table. They were already doing this asset liability matching when I first was, was hired by this pension plan. So we got rid of it. And then I didn't think about it again for another 10 years. And suddenly, pension plans were talking about asset liability matching again. And it came back in vogue. So. Smart beta is very similar. Now it's in vogue. But what's interesting about this particular trend is I think it actually has some legs. And I think it's applicable to your investment portfolio. To illustrate the concept, I'm going to tell you an experience I've had in the last week. Early last week, I went back to Ohio where I grew up. have family there. But I actually went to the town where I spent from age two through age 26. So I was there a long time. This town is called North College Hill. I went away for a couple years while I was in Mexico. I had a semester of college away. But most of my college was done there in, in Cincinnati. And North College Hill is about 10 miles north of Cincinnati. And so I was there a long time. This this town was founded in in 1910. And I believe my dad, my father was probably, I think he was born in this town. I'm I'm pretty sure he was. So he spent his life in this town. He went to school there. When he got married to my mother, they were married here. When my father passed away, we had the funeral at the local church in this town. That's where the funeral of his grandparents were. That's where I was Christian Catholic as a, as a young child at the same church in the same town. And, but I haven't lived there since I was 26. So it's been about 20 years since I lived there. But I like to go back and visit it, and particularly to see what has changed and what hasn't changed. And so it's, it's been, I've been observing this town from when I, my earliest recollections were probably when I was five. Now I'm in my 40s. So it's been 40 years I've been watching this town change. And businesses have come and gone, hundreds of businesses have probably come and gone over the years. And I want to do a thought experiment. Think about if you went back to your hometown where you grew up and you were trying to predict what was going to change over the next 20 to 30 or 40 years. What would stay the same and what would change? How would you go about doing that? Well, there's a principle that I've mentioned before in earlier episodes, that it's easier to forecast what will not change than what will. And one of the great visionaries in terms uh, in the corporate world is Jeffrey Bezos. Here's a quote from him from a 2007 Harvard Business Review article. It was an interview. He says, When I'm talking with people outside the company, there's a question that comes up very commonly. What's going to change in the next 5 to 10 years? But I very rarely get asked what's not going to change in the next 5 to 10 years. At Amazon, we're always trying to figure that out because you can really spin up flywheels around those things. A a flywheel is in a factory. it's, It's one of those huge heavy metallic wheels that takes a lot of effort to get moving but once it's going there's some definite momentum there and and so bezos is saying when they look at strategy they they do two things they're asking what's not going to change and then they plant seeds they experiment and we've talked about experiments in earlier episodes and just keep trying things when they do an experiment though they they obviously don't know how it's going to turn out, but they want to see, to make sure the experiment is something, an acorn that will grow into, if it's successful, into an oak. In other words, it's large enough to actually have an impact. So they're always experimenting. They're looking and trying to decide what's not going to change. And Nassim Nicholas Taleb, has said in The Black Swan, he, he pointed out that, and, and actually he actually also mentioned this in his book, Anti-Fragile. I'll, I'll include both on the show notes so you can, you can find the books. And he, he said the most, the, the longer something has been in place, the more likely it will continue. And so we go back to our thought experiment where you go back to your hometown. And in fact, don't even go back in today, go back 30 or 40 years and you're, you're imagining the hometown where you grew up and you're forecasting what's it going to be like 40 years hence. And the easiest way to do that would be to first focus on what you think will not change and look at things that have been there the longest. For example, in, in my town, North College, and I'm not trying to pronounce it right, it's North College Hill. But if you know anyone from North College Hill, they pronounce it North College Hill. I have no idea why we do that, probably because we never learn to speak clearly. We mumble in Ohio. But in, so we call it for NCH for short, North College Hill. What has been there the longest? There's two things. On the busiest intersection in that town where Hamilton Avenue and Galbraith Road meet, there are four corners. And on three of those corners, there has been massive change. On one, there was a gas station. They tore it down. Now there's an office building. On the other corner, there was a bank, and you would think banks would be there for a long time. This was a major bank, PNC, and it's no longer there now. They've built, they tore it down, they built a Walgreens. On the other corner, there was a shell gas station. It's no longer there in its original format. They've re- they tore it down, they rebuilt it, and they combined it with a McDonald's. But on the fourth corner, there is the original town cemetery. It has veterans of the the U.S.-American Revolutionary War there, and it it hasn't left in hundreds of years. And if you go to the episode for episode 23, I have a picture of that cemetery. That's not going to change. North College Hill is landlocked. It's not expanding because there's other towns near it. More than likely, the road, the grids of the roads is not going to change. There is a house that was built in 1832 by Robert Carey, who it's a white brick home. It is a been there for hundreds of years. I think now it's a national historic site. That's not going to go anywhere if we forecast, forecast out 30 or 40 years. Those things are not going to change. In investing, beta is focused on things that are not going to change, beta and smart beta. And we'll contrast that with this term called alpha. Alpha measures a manager's excess return relative to the market. So beta is the market. Alpha is excess return. Now that now there's many in investing, there's many different forms of beta and alpha. We're using this particular definition: beta being market exposure, alpha being excess return. If we go back to my hometown of North College Hill, I've mentioned there's been hundreds of businesses there. A and let's let's say I wanted to predict which of the hundreds of businesses over time would still be there forty years later. There's actually only three. There is a a bakery, the NCH Bakery. There is a music store, Buddy Rogers Music, sells instruments. And there's a third one. (laughs) And now I don't remember what it was. But you got a bakery, a music store. Oh, there's a tailor. So, and I never would have thought 40 years later there would be a tailor. Now, these are three businesses in their original buildings. There's been some businesses that... Have switched, but three that were there. Now, let's say that I got rewarded for picking which of the three out of a hundred businesses would survive. That would be challenging to do, but that isn't that not what a manager, a stock manager does, an active stock manager. They're selecting which dozen, two dozen, or three dozen of a thousand companies are not only going to survive. But they're going to thrive. And they're going to thrive and do better than the overall market. In other words, deliver alpha, excess return. Now, just going back to, to my hometown reminds me how hard that is. I never would have thought that the tailor would still be there. I mean, the, so many other stores, grocery stores have left, banks have left, restaurants have gone out. Well, restaurants don't surprise me so much. The bakery, interesting thing about bakery, I went over to the, the next town called Mount Healthy and tried to recognize businesses that were still there from when I was a child. The only one I could recognize that was still there was a bakery. There, There's some longevity, apparently, when it comes, resiliency, when it comes to bakeries. But adding alpha and excess return would be like trying to predict which of the hundreds of businesses in my hometown of North College Hill would would survive over 30 to 40 years. It's very, very difficult to do. Now, beta would be focusing on what wouldn't change. In other words, I would predict that there will actually be some type of businesses there. I just don't know which one. Now, that's just like buying an index fund. An index fund is a passively managed vehicle that buys the entire market. And so instead of trying to predict which stocks are going to outperform the market, you buy the, the entire market. That's, that's buying beta as opposed to trying to hire a manager to deliver alpha. Beta is focused on things that aren't going to change, that the economy will continue to grow, that corporations will, maybe some will come and go, but the largest and the best will continue to grow and deliver the returns. That is focusing on what's not going to change. That's beta investing. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow, all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number 1 cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, 7 key strategies to grow your profits at NetSuite. Dot com slash david that's netsuite slash david netsuite dot slash david now what is smart beta well think about how a typical index fund is constructed they they do the weights based on what is known as the market capitalization of the stocks or the companies and in, in all the capitalization measure, it measures the price of a stock times the number of shares outstanding. So the, the more shares outstanding and the higher the price, the higher the capitalization. And that's how traditional index funds, the Vanguard S and P 500 index fund is, based on it's weighted. Each company is weighted based on the capitalization. Why did they do that? Well, it's very, very, very liquid because the biggest companies uh, have the largest weights. And so it's easy to get in and out of those positions. The, The second thing is it doesn't require any rebalancing. The only rebalancing that occurs is if new entrance to the particular index are added and others are dropped out and whoever constructs the index makes those decisions but once that's set in place because the weight in the index fund is the same as the capitalization that well it naturally increases as the companies change as their price changes now that's it's easy for an index fund but when you think about let's go back to my hometown of north college Hill. if i wanted to do an index fund of the the companies or just an index of of the companies that exist there now and i wanted to weight them in some proportion let, let's let say for example they were publicly traded no, none of them are well, i guess mcdonald's is but if i wanted to weight them within the town how would i do that well it would be more natural to to weight them let's say based on sales and we're gonna we're gonna weight them based on who has the, the most sales and, and less sales or we could weight them based on if they paid a dividend. And so whoever pays the, the most dividends, they would be at the top of the index. Whoever paid the less, we could do it based on some other measure. We could do it based on, we could look at their accounting statements and focus on, on their book value, which I, I won't describe for you, but uh, you can look it up, book value, but that would be another way to, to weight it. All that smart beta is is instead uh, it constructs an index fund not based on capitalization but based on some other way it could be based on sales it could be based on dividends it could be be it could be equal weighted that would be another way to do smart beta you just put every company gets the same weight the problem with equal weighted is it gives up some of the benefits of capitalization which is The larger companies are the most liquid, and so you want a higher weight there. Now, there's a a gentleman by the name of Robert Arnott who came out with an article in 2005. He founded a firm called Research Affiliates. He's the one that came up with this idea called fundamental indexing. In other words, index not based on capitalization, but index based on fundamental weights, based on Book value based on sales, based on earnings. Those are all fundamental weights. And he constructed some index called fundamental indexing. There's another firm called Wisdom Tree that did the same thing. They've st- constructed index funds based on a weight based on dividends. Research affiliates index funds are available, at least in the US, are available through Schwab, but I believe that they're international this concept of smart beta fundamental indexing has really gone international. Now, why does it matter? Why, would, why invest in an index fund that's based on fundamental weights? Well, it turns out that those indices actually outperform a cap-weighted index. And, and there's been a lot of criticism about them. Well, the reason why it outperforms is because it has more of a value tilt to it and and are not written a bunch of articles. Well, no, that's not really it. But there's this ongoing debate. But here's an intuitive argument with why a fundamentally based index, something that the individual positions are weighted based on earnings or some other sales, is, is it better than cap weighted? Now, this is something that Rob Arnott pointed out. He, he says a typical cap-weighted index, if you assume every stock has its true value, what it should be worth. When you cap-weighted index, you get a number of stocks that tend to be overvalued. In other words, because it's cap-weighted, because there's a momentum aspect to markets, you can get stocks that end up being priced Are valued more than what their true value should be if you base it on discounted cash flows or some other measure. Conversely, there will be stocks that are priced lower than what they theoretically should be or their true value. And and he believes that's why these fundamental index actually deliver some excess return over a cap-weighted index. Now, this this, the downside to cap-weighted index, because you're trying to get as high a correlation to, or the downside to a fundamentally weighted index, is because you want it to be fairly highly correlated to a cap-weighted index, but actually outperform over time, you do have to rebalance it more. Now, the bottom line is, is I, when I invest in stocks... I want to, typically am not hiring an active manager. I don't want to hire somebody that is trying to deliver alpha or excess return because it is very, very difficult to do. And so and, and I don't want to have my success based on predicting what's going to change, which companies are going to do well. I want my investment success to be dependent on what's not going to change. That capitalism will continue, that economies will grow over time. And so that's why I hold the market. Now I'll then use what's again smart beta. I'll use a fundamentally weighted index fund that's not waiting based on capitalization, but it's waiting on one of these other factors. Typically, I'll maybe through Schwab or, or a wisdom tree or or there's other. There's other firms out there that do this. Just, just Google fundamentally weighted index or factor weighted index funds, and, and you can find ETFs and mutual funds that do this. And I, I do it ultimately because they outperform. Now, as we've talked about in episode 20, episode 21, again, while I'll use these smart beta type index funds, I'm focused, again, not on averages. They have outperformed the averages over time, but my overall allocation is based on focusing on the extreme events and making sure I'm protected against extreme events that, that can occur. So that's that's smart beta, and, and that allows you to, to be smarter <laughs> to know what that is, because it, it's, it's one of those terms that sounds complicated, but really it's not. It's just fundamentally weighted index funds. Ways to construct index funds that are not capitalization-weighted. Now, there's one other index fund strategy that I want to share with you. And there's a fund called the PIMCO Stock Plus Fund that's been around for many years. And this strategy is what's known as Portable Alpha. And the Stock Plus strategy, I'm not recommending it because I don't recommend investments, but it's an example of a Portable Alpha strategy And all that is is when a manager gets exposure to the specific benchmark, such as the S&P 500, but they'll get that exposure by buying futures in the index or a a swap on the index. In other words, some type of derivative security. And the reason why they do that is when you can get a $1,000 worth of exposure to the S&P 500 index by buying a futures contract. But it doesn't take very much money to do that. It just takes dollars instead of a $1,000. And now it's highly levered. But then what the manager does is takes the other $995 and goes out and invests it in some of their asset class, such as fixed income or into hedge funds. And the theory is if they do this, they get exposure through a futures contract, then they When it only takes a little bit of the assets, they invest the bulk of the other assets in a fixed income strategy or a hedge fund. And if they can get a high enough return on that fixed income strategy or on that hedge fund strategy so that the the return is higher than the embedded cost in the futures contract. In other words, there's always a short-term interest rate that factors in. To the return of futures, and, and I won't get into detail because it could get, get quite complicated. But all you need to know is if they can earn three or four percent on those bonds, or five to six percent on the hedge fund, then they will return the S and P five hundred if that's a specific benchmark, plus three to five percent. In other words, there's alpha there. That and it's that's why it's called portable alpha because you're port you're porting alpha from some other strategy, such as bond or hedge fund. And you're layering it on top of the S&P 500 index. And that's why it's called Portable Alpha. It's kind of a, an interesting strategy. Now, in the US, the Stock Plus strategy that PIMCO runs, and they've run it for years. In fact, the, it um, they have a closed-end fund. And, and this is an example where closed-end funds, and you go back, I believe it's episode 18, Investment Vehicles, I talked about what closed-end funds are and how they can sell at huge premiums or huge discounts to the underlying value of the assets. And the stock plus closed-end fund that PIMCO runs is selling at about a 40 to 50% premium. There's no way it should be doing that. It's an example of a huge inefficiency of the market. But that's just a little bit of trivia. That is a portable alpha strategy. There's other ones out there. And they can be quite effective to get... A exposure to a particular asset class, but to do it in a more consistent way to deliver alpha because there, it's not through stock selection. So you're not hiring an active manager to outperform, pick the best stocks in the S&P. You're simply trying to have a manager that can outperform short-term bond rates. And if it's structured right, it it can be done. And so it's a more effective way to, to deliver alpha. So that is episode 23. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my Insider's Guide. I'll email you those show notes. That's where I'm answering questions that listeners send in every week. For example, this past week, the, in the in the Insider's Guide, there was a question on precious metals. And precious metals, gold and silver is falling dramatically. Why was that? I answered that in that Insider's Guide. So it's a way that I can have a dialogue with you and apply back to me. So please sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you have a question, please email me. You can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. I wanted to read a review. I hadn't, I've not done that for a while. Thank you, everyone, that has left reviews on the podcast. I'm reading this review because I think he brings up a great point. This is from New York Investor 22. He says, I subscribed last week and listened to two of the most recent episodes. It was so good that I've gone back and started at episode one and listened in chronological order. I recommend doing this because David will brief, briefly review something in say, episode two to give you context and then spend half or a full future episode diving in deeper to that same theme. I actually think I'll be listening to all the episodes again once I finish. I'm on number six now. This is such a refreshing look at the economy and how it affects us. Thanks for creating such a great podcast. I've had a number of listeners that re-listened to podcasts, and now we're up to 23 episodes. So one of the things I'm going to be doing is putting together podcast packs or playlists. So Because there are certain podcast episodes that kind of go together. And so I'm putting together a resources page on that resources page I'll have some of these podcast triplets or podcast packs where you say well you know, here's a theme and here's the episodes that I want to re-listen to because it's hard to listen to i mean, all 23 again but I, I, I admit I, I listen to all episodes of my own podcast just to remember what uh, what I said and, and sometimes honestly when I was driving up to Cleveland the other day I'm like wow I can't believe I said that or I learned something so That's the episode for the day, episode 23. Just remember, everything I've shared with you in this podcast is for general education only. I've not given you specific investment advice. I've not considered your situation. So please consider only general education on money, investing, and the economy. Next episode, episode 24. If you have a suggestion for it, email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Thanks.